Welcome to Offscript, where we explore what the Bible's subversive wisdom has to say about today's most pressing issues. Hey there, we've got a great episode for you today. This is now our third and last episode in our series on work. We've talked about the Christian work ethic and what sorts of jobs Christians should shoot for as well as avoid. And now today we are talking about work's opposite, rest. This is a really important topic to consider. In this episode, we discuss the crazy pace of American culture and why we need to take breaks each day, each week, and each year. We discuss questions such as, what is the Sabbath? Should Christians keep the Sabbath today? How can we lead balanced lives? And much more. Here now is the Offscript episode for today. Hey, I'm Sean here with Rose as usual, and today Dan's out of town, but subbing in for him is Sean Kelly, our co-host, to help us discuss this third part of our series on work. And we're talking about the opposite of work today, which is the idea of Sabbath. I want to start off by talking about how we live in the age of convenience, how we have incredible time-saving benefits in our generation, including buying food instead of growing it, having washers and dryers and dishwashers. For example, I have this vivid memory of when I went as a missionary on a short-term mission trip to Africa with Ruth, my wife, some years back, we were driving over a bridge and we looked down and on the river banks, there were these women doing laundry and doing laundry in this country was taking your clothes to the riverside, scrubbing it in the water to get every stain out and any kind of dirt out and then spreading your clothes over the rocks for them to dry. <laughs> and that's what doing laundry is for these people and you just think of like something so simple as like a washing machine or a dryer and just the incredible amount of time saving that has i think of uh hans rosling who i think was the first big ted talk person i ever listened to he has a lot of great visuals with his talks but his big one that i i first heard which was on productivity was uh dealing with the washing machine the amount of time it cuts out of the average person's life. And he talks about his grandmother. The first time she saw, they got a washing machine, all she wanted to do was pull up a chair and watch it work. <laughs> and how he addressed the class. He's Swedish, and he, he's a professor there. He said, uh, you know, an average in, in these African countries, hours are spent every week just washing clothes, which it leads to no productivity anywhere else. And it reminds me of another instance with, you know, these third world nations, it was a moth talk I heard with James Casaga, who talks about how every single day for hours as a 10-year-old boy, all he would do is spend his full day getting new grass thatch for the roof of his parents' house. And how his big dream was to get a metal roof for his home so he couldn't, so he could actually go and do something productive with cattle, because I think he was also a herder. What, what country is this? He's in Uganda. Okay. And all he could do was spend his day getting new thatch for the house because every day the wind and the, you know, the weather just ripped it apart and made it useless for the next day. And that's what he spent his entire day doing and led to no productivity. And it wasn't a choice. If he didn't do it, he had no roof. 
So we have so much to be thankful for when it comes to time-saving technology of so many different kinds. I mowed my lawn today, and I used a gas-powered lawnmower. How much time would that have taken with one of those old-school mechanical mowers, right? Or a scythe, (laughs) whatever they (laughs) use in the old days. And we have instant water in our homes, both hot and cold. We don't spend any time at all shoveling latrines. When's the last time you shoveled a latrine, Rose? Uh, Never. Uh, I was hoping (laughs) I was going to find some Adirondack story there. No. <laughs> about, uh, well, actually, every every <laughs> Tuesday we shovel it out. But no, we don't. We just hit the flush. We have coffee machines. Coffee machines have now been replaced with Keurigs because they're faster mm-hmm. and they just have hot water miraculously there all the time. You push a button, it's it's thirty seconds, right? And then, and then your coffee is ready. Or we have hot water machines that boil water crazy fast, much faster than the old school tea kettle. We don't spend any time collecting wood for heat or to cook. We have ovens that take a couple of minutes to preheat. We have gas top stoves. We have microwaves, frozen meals, instant foods, fast food restaurants. We have incredibly fast transportation. Everything is a time-saving device in my life, standing on the shoulders of other people. And... Yet, I bet just like you, I feel like I have no time. There's no time to do anything outside of the regular routine. Do you feel that way, Rose? Yeah, definitely. Why is that? I think standards have increased in what we expect that we can do. I remember I read an article a long time ago about uh, what happened to the cleanliness of homes with electric lighting. And then also when they got things like vacuums, the standard of cleanliness just totally spiked because the expectations rose to meet the technology that they had. And now I think it's that way with our jobs. I'm a graphic designer and what I'm able to accomplish compared to a typesetter from like, you know, 50, 60 years ago is unbelievable. So the amount of work uh, that we're expected to do as a result of the standard spike um, has increased dramatically. In our culture, we admire overachievers. We look at the Olympian who practices obsessively or the doctor who works a double shift or someone who works tirelessly at some job and then also puts themselves through night school so they can get ahead. We respect those who work hard. And there is a biblical precedent for working hard. And we've already talked about that on our episode about the Christian work ethic, where in Colossians we read about how we're supposed to work heartily as unto the Lord. It's not like uh, working hard is, is wrong, but there is an extreme And in America today, according to a recent Gallup poll, the average work week for salaried workers is 49 hours a week. And so what they say is that nearly 40% work 50 or more hours a week. So that's almost half are working more than 50 hours. We're, We're talking about a lot of hours worked. And the example I like to use for this is Elon Musk, who's the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla Motors, and I don't know how he calculates this, but he says for 15 years, he worked 100 hours a week, which divides out to 14 hours a day, mm. every day, seven days a week. That doesn't even seem reasonable. Do you believe that? Yeah, I, I, I think as a CEO, 
or you know someone whose company is revolves around their life i think one can go to dinner and work have lunch and work you know in my right. job i don't i don't have that option he gets to be in locations that are a little more by choice. I'm not. I'm not trying to take away from his work at all. I'm sure he's, so you he's th- genuine. You think he probably but, did work 14 hours a day. But yeah, it's it's not the same as sitting in an office for 14 hours a day. Right. Yeah, it's not. He says that over the last few years, he only worked 80 to 90 hours a week. Which, even if you just work 80 hours a week, just 80, that's 11 hours and 25 minutes a day seven days a week and so he's like a double ceo so he can give 40 hours a week to tesla and then another 40 hours a week to spacex and <laughs> work double time and i'm not trying to judge elon musk for what he's doing but i am saying that there, there's got to be some sort of balance in our lives and many of us like you said sean many of us don't work these high-level, problem-solving, creative jobs. A lot of us are just working our job, and it's not the CEO of a company that's trying to change the world and bring about electric cars or whatever. Add to that, Forbes magazine says, in a poll of 2,300 workers who get paid vacation, only 25% said they use all their paid days each year. 61% said that while they're on vacation, they continue to work. Or another poll by Skift said 41% of Americans didn't take a single vacation day at all during 2015. Zero vacation days. That's 41% of Americans. So it's nearly half. What is that? It's not surprising necessarily. In, in the worst part, it, it does seem to be that lower paying jobs have people who work more often. You know, and it makes sense in one aspect. You know, you can't afford to take a vacation if you don't make much. But but it reminds me, I, I remember just seeing this documentary in which some guy was operating some sort of logging machine out in Washington or Oregon. And he said he hadn't taken a vacation in like 35 years. And I'm like, that's why you're where you are. You know, it's like your brain and body need a vacation. Otherwise, you cannot perform better than your the guy next to you the break is needed if he did have a break he probably would say to himself what am i doing with my life is there another way i could work things out so that i could have a little bit more enjoyment or rest i mean those kinds of thoughts come to you when you're not forcing yourself to work as hard as you can all the time so let's bring on board what the bible says about the sabbath so i think when the bible does speak about work we, we've talked about a lot of what it says, but there's this other important subject, which is the Sabbath, our, our topic for today. It's not for no reason that God works it into the flow of the work week that there is this day off. And the first time we come across the Sabbath is in Exodus chapter 16. And what's so interesting about that chapter is that's the manna chapter where God introduces to Moses and Moses to the people the concept of manna. Chapter 15, they had been singing a song because they made it through the Red Sea, they're liberated slaves, and in chapter 16, they get hungry and they don't know what to do, and you've got over a million ex-slaves in a desert, hungry, and God 
institutes this mana economy where they're supposed to go out every morning and gather together this mana and that's when he institutes this whole idea of the sixth day and the seventh day and so in exodus 16 22 it says now on the sixth day they gather twice as much bread two omers for each one when all the leaders of the congregation came and told moses then he said to them this is what the lord meant Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance. That's the first instance of the word Sabbath in the entire Bible, Exodus 16, 23. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Whereas previous days, they were told not to gather more than what they needed for each day. And if they did, it bred worms. So on this, the day before the Sabbath, which would be Friday, they would gather twice as much. This is a very simple little way that God can work with his people to instill trust in his provision for them that he's going to double provide on Friday so that they don't have to go out and gather it on Saturday. So that what does that do? That gives them one day a week where they don't have to work. It's also interesting. It's four chapters until the Ten Commandments come, and God actually legislates the Sabbath, um, you know, as its own thing apart from manna. But it's interesting how God provides His people to observe that day and works it into their lifestyle. Um, kind of gives them that rhythm to rest and observe the Sabbath. The language He uses here in verse twenty-nine is, "See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift to these slaves." And then later on. We read in Deuteronomy 5 where the Ten Commandments are reiterated that the major reasoning behind the Sabbath is that they were slaves in Egypt. We read in Deuteronomy 5.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So what makes a slave? A slave is someone who doesn't have control over their own time. And so a Sabbath is where God is saying, look, you're not a slave anymore. I liberated you. I'm giving you control over time so that you can take a day off. And in the commandment here in Deuteronomy 5, it's not just for the master of the house or the patriarch or the matriarch. It's for everyone. It even specifies your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, all your cattle, the stranger who stays with you. Everybody gets a day off. And it's just this really cool principle that God builds into the way of life for his people. And in connecting it with a deliverance from Egypt, it's like a mini Passover celebration every single week that we were slaves, but we're not anymore. You know, there are three festivals throughout the year where they're supposed to not work during the week and supposed to just eat and be merry and celebrate the story of what God's done for his people. And then every six years, they're supposed to sow your field in Leviticus 25 every, uh, every year for six years. And then on the sixth year, God's going to provide for them so that on the seventh year, they are not supposed to work the land. And this is Leviticus 25, 4. It says, But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Every seventh year, now the land gets a year off. And this doesn't say that people don't work for a whole year. It just says they don't work the land that year. 
things are still going to grow of their own, but they're not supposed to gather them. And what God says to them is, well, if people say, well, what am I going to do for food the next year or the year after that? Because if you don't plant on the seventh year, then you're not going to have any food on the eighth year either. (laughs) So what God says to them is, I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. God is going to bless their harvest on the sixth year so much that it's going to last them until after letting the land rest that seventh year, they're able to take care of themselves again. I think that's a radical trust exercise because with manna, it's like maybe we could go one day without food, but this idea of going like, what, two years? Uh, you know, for basically it's the gap of like two harvests. That's crazy. It's like, I got kids, God. Are you really going to provide? And what what a testimony too to other people being like, what? This whole nation, they're not, they're not planning. Not farm for a year? Yeah, it's like, wow, you really trust in that God that brought you out of Egypt, huh? Yeah. It's definitely a cool idea and... I don't think they did it because we read at the very end of Second Chronicles how God kicks them out of the land after they had lived in it for centuries. And it talks about how the house of God got burned with fire and the wall of Jerusalem was torn down. And then it talks about how they were carried away into Babylon and then it says, this is Second Chronicles thirty six twenty one. it says, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And so God says to them, look, trust me, I'm going to take care of you. Give the land a break every seven years. And of course, the land needs that too. This is a scientific fact. Unless you pump it full of fertilizers and chemicals and plant food, you do have to let the land rest. And so they just did not trust that God was going to take care of them. Like you said, it's a radical idea. And so God said, all right, you're not going to trust me. This is my land. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to get you out of the land, and then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. The big thing with the Sabbath, too, is it's a it's a recall to the fact that God rested when he worked. Right. For some reason whatsoever, whatever God's rest meant to him, he required it of his people at that point for Israel. With that scientific fact for the land, and there, there is something with that, that it's needed. Rest of some sort is needed for everything and everyone in some way. And you, you can tell when someone has been overworked or something has oh, been yeah. overworked. And it's, it's very obvious. It's like the way God designed us. We sleep at night. You can avoid that for a short period, but eventually you're going to fall asleep. You are going to recharge your batteries, so to speak. And that's built into our daily routine. And then you have the weekly routine and it's like, God's like, all right, just take a day off. And it doesn't say here, go to church. It doesn't say go to synagogue. It doesn't say worship me all day and meditate with your legs crossed in some sort of uncomfortable yoga position. He's saying, just don't work one day. Yeah, but I do think that is a major part of it. And that is calling back to, let's say, some person who has worked for 25 years. They've gotten so probably lost in what they could have been, you know, assuming that 
they've been just stuck in the same position, doing the daily grind for 25 years. They've never really stopped and had a moment of thinking of their potential because all you know their work has consumed them. And when you do take that break, which is what God's calling them to do so that they can do as he did and treat him as holy, you know, the day is holy, it's his day, they stop their work week and stop thinking about it and at least then they have to think about him in some way, shape, or form. You know, mm-hmm. Without moving too far ahead, you know, that is a big deal of later on in the New Testament, they corrupt it, but Jesus is coming by and implementing the fact that your goal is to think about God. And if you're not doing that, you're not treating it correctly. And I think that's a big deal of taking a break. It lets your mind get back to a stable position to think about things bigger than your daily life. I mean, I, I think about, you know, when you're going to school or college, you get that summer break, and all of a sudden you start thinking about your potential. If you haven't done well the previous semester, you're like, oh, I can, you know, a couple weeks out, you, you know, you've gotten past your grind, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know what, if I just wake up a little earlier and do this, I'm going to succeed more. And that's because you've stepped back for a moment just right, long enough right. to really grasp what you can be doing instead during that time. And, you know, sometimes you implement it and then sometimes it's, you know, the same thing as the previous semester. But, you know, just having a break allows your mind to refocus yourself. I think that's super powerful. I even think about the problems I solve on my lunch break uh, when I get that hour away, come back and suddenly it's it's been the chance for reflection. Even sometimes self-consciously, I come back and I'm much more able to solve the problem after that break. All right. So. What we're saying from an Old Testament theology perspective is that God invented the Sabbath. He made it for his people. It was something he gave to them as a gift, a day off to remind them of creation and how he did things. And then also to remind them that they're no longer slaves and that they can rejoice one day a week and take a break. And all these benefits, Sean, you've been talking about go along with this idea of taking a break. And then you also have the festivals. Three weeks of vacation a year would be included in that based on the Hebrew calendar. And then you also have these every seven years where you would still be working, but you wouldn't be farming and so it would be a, just a year of great rejoicing, I think. Mm. And probably a lot of crafts would, would flourish in that year where you, you would repair your furniture or make things mm-hmm. if, if they ever practiced it. Who knows? <laughs> and then you have the year of Jubilee, which is every seven sevens. You have the same sort of thing, but a little more extended and all debts being forgiven as well. And so this is the whole Old Testament economy. And... It's a beautiful thing. I think a lot of times people assume that what the Pharisees did to the Sabbath is what was standard throughout all of the history of keeping the Sabbath and that the Sabbath is this nasty burden. But if you look at it from a pre-New Testament perspective, Sabbath is this really cool opportunity to take a break. Then we bring it into Jesus and we encounter these persnickety nitpickers who are constantly popping up out of nowhere and criticizing Jesus' disciples for picking heads of grain on the Sabbath or criticizing Jesus for healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and Jesus coming back 
And this is really an interim Jewish disagreement or dialogue. It's the sort of thing that was very normal in their culture where you'd have different rabbis and different perspectives on the law going at it with each other to figure out what is the right perspective. And it's in the context of that that we read how Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And I feel like that is a key insight where Jesus is trying to bring some light to the Pharisees and to the legalistic-minded people to recognize that, look, this is supposed to be a blessing that God's given us, not something that cripples us or burdens us. Yeah, I think Jesus focused more on the aspect of the fact that God has given you the Sabbath. They didn't look at the fact that the Sabbath was given to them by God as an opportunity of rest. They looked at it as a, okay, this is what we have to do on this day. They didn't look at the origin. They looked at the application of it. Mm -hmm. And that's all that they were looking at. It was probably a lot fear-driven just from trying to prevent the past from happening again with the historical takeovers of Israel due to the fact oftentimes, you know, the Sabbath not being kept was one of the big deals of them being overthrown in the past, especially with Rome in charge at the moment. They wanted to be perfect and overthrow. Mm -hmm. But instead, Jesus didn't look at the application part. He looked at the gift part. Mm -hmm. So they may have overcorrected in terms of being overzealous and being incredibly nitpicky and legalistic about keeping the Sabbath. Jesus, though, definitely makes allowances and says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is after he's healing. And he also gives the example of if you have uh, livestock that falls into a pit, you'll get them out on that day. And I think that's awesome how, you know, again, expanding the idea that the Sabbath was created for your welfare. It's not supposed to, uh, to hinder you. Um, or keep you back from doing good, you know, to leave the guy unhealed or to leave your livestock in the pit. Rather, it's the freedom to rest and not have to feel guilty about it. It's kind of fascinating how Sabbath observance has changed over the years from what it was in the first century to what it is today. I was looking on this website called Chabad.org, and they give a brief summary of some of the Shabbat laws Mm. that you will encounter if you try to practice it according to the modern custom. And they list off those basic activities that we should refrain from on the Sabbath, including, are you ready? Mm. Writing, erasing, and tearing, business transactions, driving or riding in cars or other vehicles, shopping, using the telephone, turning on or off anything which uses electricity, including lights, radios, television, computer, air conditioners, and alarm clocks, cooking, baking, or kindling a fire, gardening and grass mowing, and doing laundry. Yeah, I lived uh, with a Gentile family, but in a heavily Jewish community. And they talked about how much work every Sabbath was for them because they would have to go around and turn off everyone's lights and everyone's TVs. (laughs) So it's like somebody's got to do it. Also, when my parents were in Israel, they ended up carrying their luggage up like to the top floor of the hotel because the elevator took so long because you couldn't, nobody could like operate it. You weren't supposed to hit any of the buttons on the elevator. So it would stop and the doors would open on every single floor. And it took so long. Eventually they just hefted their bags and marched up the stairs. This website goes on. It says, it asks a question. Does all this mean that Shabbat is somewhat of a miserable affair (laughs) where we sit hungry in the dark, 
Not at all. It simply means that we have to prepare for Shabbat in advance. They go on to give the example of how they deal with lights. And they say that lights, which will be needed on Shabbat, are turned on before Shabbat. Automatic timers may be used for lights and some appliances as long as they have been set before Shabbat. I'll bet they could have the best app for that with electronic homes that are all on a timer. You could like <laughs> preset your Shabbat settings. I saw this one light invention where it was a light that was always on. And so you don't have to turn it on or off, but you, you turn this cover on it so that the light shines through or doesn't shine through. Oof. It was a Sabbath safe light where it just skirted it enough so that you're allowed to uncover a light, but you're not allowed to turn it on. To me, that still meets the definition of turning on and turning off. You're just not disabling the, the electricity <laughs> to it. It's around. Well, how about this one? The so, refrigerator. <laughs> the refrigerator may be used, but again, we have to ensure that its use does not engender any of the forbidden Shabbat activities. Thus, the fridge light should be disconnected before Shabbat by unscrewing the bulb slightly, and a freezer whose fan is activated when the door is open may not be used. We may not cook or light a fire, so we cook before Shabbat and keep the food warm through special methods that do not violate any Shabbat prohibitions. So I feel like this whole, maybe I'm just being an insensitive Gentile here, but I feel like this whole industry or, or way of thinking about Shabbat that has come about now is all about skirting all of these rules that have grown up through the rabbinic tradition and the oral laws about what you can and what you can't do. Like you said, the, your, your elevator example, like there's still an elevator, it's still going. Is anybody doing any work? No. It's the elevator that's doing work. The elevator's not an individual. The elevator's a thing. Is pushing a button work? No, obviously not. So like, why not just use a stupid elevator? So now you've got Gentiles carrying bags up flights of stairs, expending incredibly more work <laughs> than if just the stupid elevator worked normally. And... You know, they have this other rule where you're not allowed to carry anything. So what did Jewish communities do? And they talk about this on this website. They, they built this huge fence around, like, the whole neighborhood and then considered it inside this area so it's not outside so you can carry stuff. And it's just like, mm. come on. You're totally missing the mindset of the Sabbath, which is where you're supposed to take a rest, but not that it's supposed to be this incredible burden for you. I guess I shouldn't sit here and try to correct Jews on how they should keep the Sabbath. But like, yeah. it's hard not, it's hard to resist that. I imagine there were in the past, a lot of arguments between Jews and some people were doing some things and other people considered it violation. So probably it was kind of pragmatic to go out and define everything. So everyone would observe like a uniform Sabbath. But I mean, I, I do understand how it's gotten to be like so incredibly micromanaged um, and especially the amount of work kind of planning it the day before could uh, undo the rest that you would profit from it. When it comes to Christianity, the big question for us today, on this episode at least, is do we need to keep the Sabbath? What would you guys say to that? I don't think we need to uh, keep the Sabbath. I think a major part is the mindset that we are supposed to have. I would not work a seven-day work week regularly. Uh, on occasion, I might, depending on the situation, but that would not make it my norm because I know physically I, I could not do that and succeed. 
I make sure that church is something I make a part of my life. I make sure that work does not interfere with that. I think a lot of people really miss the mark by saying, if God knows my heart or something of that sort. And there is something very strong about making physical commitments to yourself that instead of making money or instead of getting a promotion, if it's really that drastic of a difference, that you will take the day off and go to church. It's crucial. And it's not necessarily keeping the Sabbath, but it is setting a day aside to make sure that you are interacting with people of, of God and making sure that your mind is staying strong. What you do physically will change how, what you do mentally. So what I hear you saying is Christians don't need to keep the Sabbath, but they should. Yeah, I, the Sabbath, whether it's a Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I don't think that's a big deal. Uh, so in Christ, I believe we have the freedom to choose to keep it or not to keep it. Why in, do you say that? Uh, well, in Colossians... Just, just, just for the sake of my Sabbatarian oh, yeah, friends yeah. out there that Oh, no problem. Um, and if it's right for you, uh, right in your conscience to keep it, you can keep it. Um, I did have a friend a long time ago who kept the Sabbath and ended up burdening everyone because they all had to do his work. Um, you do have to keep that in mind <laughs> uh, to not do that and uh, to bear your own burdens, as the I'm scripture the tells Sabbath. us. Can you put my shoes on for yeah, me? Yeah, <laughs> he, he worked on a dairy farm, so you can just imagine. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> so in Colossians 2... Paul is talking about Christ and all the amazing things that were accomplished on the cross. Then he says, in light of all this, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So given all that Christ accomplished in establishing a new covenant, if it's right for you, observe the Sabbath. You know, don't inconvenience other people or harm other people uh, with your Sabbath keeping, but you are not under obligation. And if you keep it, keep it to the Lord. So because there is a new covenant, the old covenant is no longer in force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I do think knowing God's heart you know, as a father figure, he, he's very different from all the other ancient gods who demanded things of their people. He, Yahweh is a father figure to Israel. And yes, he does require things of them, but he also cares for them and makes certain that they do take a rest. Um, I think you can learn from that his, his plan for our lives, which is keeping ourselves busy working with our hands, but also rest on the side. And I do think we should take to heart the Old Testament and his pattern there and then apply it to our lives, definitely working rest in, not necessarily in, in the structured way of a Sabbath, but kind of like what Sean Kelly said, to create your own Sabbath in a way that works and also certainly in a way that, that gives you time to focus on relationships and reflect on God. To my... Sabbatarian friends who might be listening, the central controversy of the New Testament, period, is whether or not Gentiles can be part of the Jesus movement and whether or not they need to keep the law. And the early Christians decided in Acts chapter 15, in a letter that they wrote and sent to the Gentile communities, with the Apostle Paul, who wrote Galatians and Romans, that Gentiles do not need to keep the law of Moses, and they are full members of the household of faith. Then we read later on in Hebrews that Jews no longer need to keep the Old Covenant because the New Covenant is here now. It's based on better promises. Jesus is a better mediator, and he comes from a better priesthood. And his sacrifices once for all time, and that even the Old Testament sacrifices, which were still going on at that time, 
no longer actually did anything in the eyes of God. And so this is a whole other conversation, the theology of new covenant versus uh, keeping the old covenant, but it, it is something that's going to come up, I'm sure. And if you would like to challenge us on that, feel free to leave some feedback on restitutio.org if you'd like to get into that conversation. But as for me personally, I agree with you guys and think that God knew what he was talking about when he said, take a day off. And what I like to do is I have three personal rules, which are to sleep in, to go outside, and to spend more time with God than normal. Those are my three rules. If you want to adopt those rules, go ahead. But if not, uh, we can still be friends. I think it's good to sleep in, to get a little extra rest. I think it's good to go outside, to be reminded of creation on the day that you're resting, like God rested when he created everything. And that if you're going to have more time on this one day, whatever day of the week it is for you, then you should spend more of that time with God than you normally do. So if you normally spend a half an hour with God in the morning, maybe this day you spend an hour. And look, if he's giving you this day as a gift, might as well give him some of it back. You know, it just makes sense. That's my personal philosophy on it. But I think there's a bigger conversation here about overcommitting ourselves and pace and not, you know, the ancient Israelites weren't supposed to harvest the edges of their field. They were supposed to leave that for the orphan, the widow, the stranger, those who needed it. And if you think about our days, it's not healthy to harvest our days to the edges where we are so committed and so ultra productive that we get home from work and then we're working our second or third jobs or so stressed out with life that we have no margin in our lives. I'm kind of... Confession time. Yeah, it is confession time. Um, I'm not at all a workaholic. I enjoy like a little bit of work, but beyond a certain point, I, I start to hate it more and more. Uh-huh. There have been times in my life when I have had to take on almost more work than I could handle. And it was not really a choice, um, but a necessity. And these were, by and large, times of coming to rely more on God. So there there were times when, um, when sometimes the idea of rest and togetherness with God is not as physically relaxing as I would have liked it to be. But through that, it is an opportunity to reach out and sustain that relationship however possible through times when sometimes you need to be overworked. And the New Testament does say it is critical to provide for those of your own household. There are times, and you need to pay off your debts, there are times when in order to be responsible, you may have to be a little afraid at the edges. However, for those of us who have a tendency um, toward overcommitting and being workaholics and who don't need to work that much, we, I believe, offer God a better offering when we are whole, when we are not afraid at the edges, when we have that time to reflect and to offer ourselves to Him and cultivate relationships on the side of just obligations. To me, I put career second, maybe third place, depending on how you put one and two. I put um, my involvement in church and being a part of the believers that as far as scheduling goes, that and family are, you know, number one and two, and they often coincide. So with dealing with taking time off for either a church event or something, in my mind, I put it as something that is, it must happen. And if this job is not going to allow me to do that, it's not a job for me. 
and you have to use wisdom. I mean, I use my PTO for church events. I really don't have much left over at the t- end of the year to just take days off for myself. Right. And that's fine. Like, that's how I want to use it. And I think if you have PTO. What is PTO? PTO is paid time off. But, you know, if, if you work a job that has it, that's where I would recommend using it. If you're using it for yourself, you're going to struggle to take off for church events. And you're going to be that person who can who misses out and always has an excuse. And I don't think that's acceptable, you know, because then you end up being the person who comes by and, you know, four years on acts like no time has passed. And there's a whole new group of people that you've missed out on the opportunity to grow relationships with. To you, uh-huh. you may realize, you know, think that nothing has changed, but a lot has changed. And it's because you didn't use your time wisely. I, I think a lot of people run into that. I, I know of a lot of people who over the past few years where I see them more often at events that I didn't see before. And they missed out on the opportunities to meet some of these newer people that have come around. It happens but it doesn't have to happen. And I think if you put church and your opportunity to spend time with the family of God first, you don't run into issues. What, what do you think about the whole idea of rest? Most of us don't work 16 hours a day. Most of us have a few hours in the evening or at night when we're able to have some leisure time to do with what whatever we please. Yeah, to me, rest is when I can do some work with no time constraint. And you're not stressed out with about no, it. With no one checking how good it came out. Like, it's enjoyable and it's relaxing yeah. because I can actually have some sort of, pro, you know, something at the end of the day that I did and it's not having someone looking over it and making sure I did it right and I did it on my own time. There's um, the fiddler on the roof and all he does is, he walks his donkey with his milk carton into town and he's just talking to God and, you know, having a back and forth dialogue with God the whole time. And it's like when I work by myself, I find that quite a bit. And there's there's definitely an alone time with God when you when you are working, whatever type of work it is. But in that type of relaxing situation where it's outside the actual workplace and just doing it for yourself. And to me, that there is a resting aspect to that. I sleep well at night. You know, I feel refreshed afterwards. I don't feel like I've only trained myself even more. I feel the opposite. And that, to me, is what rest is. Mm -hmm. Tying into what Sean said, I do think you have to know yourself. You have to know um, what wears you thin, even with your rest, and what really restores you. And I think it's totally fine uh, to spend some time just doing just what you want, even if you're not super productive. But you do have to do this all in view with, you know, even with your rest, um, it still belongs to God. Any concluding thoughts on this subject? I love that God set resting as an example for us, that he blessed the Sabbath day and called it holy, and that it's totally fine to kick up our feet if we do it in a God-honoring way. A phenomenal example, like so different, and who would have thought God would do that? But yet he did. I think people look at God as this killjoy, and that's not who he is at all. I mean, he's the one who invented all the taste buds on our tongues and all the nerve endings on our skin and who made the kind of world we inhabit. And so I don't think he does want us to be miserable. I think he wants us to be full of joy and to live meaningful lives and to do it in relation to him, not over against what he says is right. When we do pursue righteousness, we we pursue doing things God's way, there is rest for our souls. You know, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? And so we come to Christ for rest, and we come to God for rest. And 
we read in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So there's this idea that God does give us refreshment, that spending time with him is meaningful. Whether we're working or just meditating or reading the scripture or playing with our kids or our friends or whatever, going for a run, it is this same idea. So that's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in. You, she goes last, though, so you have to say goodbye. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> Thank you for listening, guys. If you have any comments or uh, critiques or compliments, feel free to leave them. We love hearing what you guys have to say. We appreciate the feedback. God bless you all. Au revoir. Just before we finish up here, I wanted to mention a couple of comments that have come in on restitutio.org for this Offscript series. The first comes from Brian, who commented on our last episode about honorable work, millennials, and unemployment. And he says, great conversation, guys. I'm a millennial who is also a follower of Jesus. I've been blessed with what I view as the perfect job for me. I've always been viewed as a great employee by my employers, so they tell me, but I still struggle in the simple things like taking an extra few minutes during a break or having a bad work attitude every now and then. Listening to this was both challenging and encouraging. Thanks, guys. Also, Paul Peterson wrote on the same episode, your two-part series on work is perhaps the best discussion on the subject that I have listened to. It has been a well-timed encouragement to me. Thank you. Coincidentally, I have been reading Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. Just this morning, I came across a section in Chapter 8 called The Glory of My Job, in which he addresses the subject of being a disciple of Jesus in the workplace. He begins the section by saying, But let us become as specific as possible. Consider just your job, the work you do to make a living. This is one of the clearest ways possible of focusing upon apprenticeship to Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is, crucially, to be learning from Jesus how to do your job as Jesus himself would do it. New Testament language for this is to do it in the name of Jesus. He then gives several general guidelines for how and how not to do this, all of which complement what you guys talked about. Thanks again for your insights and the thoughtful consideration you give to each week's episode. Well, thank you so much, Brian and Paul, for writing in and taking the time to drop a comment on our Offscript episode 10 about honorable work, millennials, and unemployment. This is an extremely important area of life, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. So if you would like to listen to that episode, just go to restitutio.org and find Offscript episode number 10, and you can hear what they're talking about. Also, if you don't mind, why not add your voice to the conversation and drop a comment, or even better, write a review on iTunes for Restitutio so that others can find this podcast as well, and hopefully that will inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth, my friend, has nothing to fear.